You're listening to On the Vine, a podcast about Ivy League basketball. Brought to you by IvyHoopsOnline.com. Right, it is just past seven o'clock on the East Coast. Just past four o'clock here on the West Coast. The sun is still out. It's hard to disbelieve, and it's springtime in February in Berkeley, California. Welcome to another episode of On the Vine, a podcast about Ivy League basketball, brought to you by IvyHoopsOnline.com. Uh, I'm your host Peter Andrews, and we have a, a great starting five here, ready for all of you this week. Um, first, back from a inexcusable week off. It's like he was never gone at all. Mike Tony, Mike, how are you? Good, and I'll make sure if I have any computer glitches tonight that they sound just like Mexican radio by Wall of Voodoo like they did two weeks ago. that sound good? That's, Does that sound like anything at all? That's fine by me. That's fine by me. Uh, we're joined, as always, by the Toothless Tiger himself, George Clark. George, how are you doing? Very well, thanks. Nice to see you all. Uh, and then the first of our two special... Great. Thanks for uh, having me. Uh, you know, I've uh, followed you guys on Twitter and listened to some of your podcasts in the past before I got to Dartmouth. So it's uh, exciting to be on here and uh, talk a little bit about Dartmouth basketball and uh, the future, uh, the direction our program's going right now. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm doing well. Thanks for uh, inviting me on the show. I like the coverage you guys do at Ivy Hoops Online, so glad I can finally talk to you guys in person. All right, and I realized just now that in typical fashion, my mic was muted for some of those introductions, so really quick one more time. we got George Clark, we've got Scott Waterman, Director of Basketball Operations for Dartmouth, and we've got Luke Benz of the Yale Undergraduate Sports Group. So let's start with uh, Scott. I want to chat a little bit about uh, about you and about how you came to be at Dartmouth. So to lead off, can you tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, where you went to college, what your career path has been in basketball and, and how you ended up with the big green? Yeah. Um, kind of a different path, uh, to get to Dartmouth in comparison, but it's a great, uh, great story in my opinion. I, uh, I'm from Southern California. Um, I went to Occidental college division three school out there, pretty high academic school. I played there. And uh, upon graduation, uh, you know, just had or when I was at Occidental, just had such a passion for the game. was wasn't a great player by any means. So that's what you do. You get into coaching when you're not a good player, and uh, you uh, uh, just really found a passion. And um, I started off at Long Beach State when I graduated from Occidental. I just basically volunteered there my first two years. Uh, then I became a director of basketball operations there for two. Uh, full-time assistant there for one. Then I was at Cal State Fullerton for six years, uh, one year as a director of basketball operations there, and then five as an assistant coach. Uh, 
after that, I went to Pomona Pitzer, one of the top academic Division three schools uh, in the United States, and I uh, was the associate head coach there for three years. And um, this all kind of culminated in me ending up at Dartmouth. And um, kind of as I'm on my career path, one of the things that's really enticed me about, uh, you know, what I was looking for, I should say, I guess it was so enticing about Dartmouth was the fact that um, high academics and Division One basketball um, all combined together. So it was kind of the perfect mix of what I've been looking for and uh, in my background. So it was a it was a great opportunity, and uh, you know, Coach uh, McLaughlin, uh, you know, took a chance on me. We were very didn't know each other very well, but we had some common acquaintances, and um, it's been a great experience so far working for him. Yeah, uh, so new new direction of the Dartmouth program this year. Um, what are your responsibilities? As a, you know, I I have some sense of what a director of basketball operations does, but in another much more technical sense, I have no idea. So, what what is it that you sort of do on a on a on a day to day basis, both during the season and then kind of in the off season? Yeah, so you're kind of a, a master of all trades and jack of none. But uh, you know, I, I feel that. Uh, I guess I should say jack of all trades, master of none. I'm sorry about that. Um, but you, uh, you know, I have my uh, hands on all aspects of the program, be it, uh, you know, our guys, uh, academic schedules, uh, scheduling for the team games, uh, you know, all of our team travel. Uh, I handle our film breakdown, film exchange. I'm in, you know, involved in all the recruiting meetings, all the coaching meetings, um, and, uh, you know, it's just, you know, anything that kind of goes on in the program on a day-to-day basis is probably coming across my desk. So then uh, I'm curious a little bit about, so you're, you're coming in with a new program. It's also first season for uh, for Coach McLaughlin as a head coach. Um, and it's sort of a, an up-and-down season so far for Dartmouth. Um, can you talk a little bit about what some struggles you guys have, have run into have been um, how you think the, the the season has gone so far? Yeah, you know, I think, uh, you know, as you come in as a new coaching staff, probably the biggest thing is trying to, you know, get your uh, philosophy across to the players. They obviously, we hadn't recruited any of them and had to come in and, uh, you know, embrace, get them to embrace what we wanted. And uh, that takes time, um, you know, obviously, especially with the Ivy League rules where our guys aren't around in the summer um, and we start school real late. So late September, you know, we're behind the pack in terms of practice and workouts. So we kind of jumped right in and then trying to install a new offensive and defensive philosophy from what the previous staff did just takes time. And um, I think that uh, part of our initial struggles was just going through those uh, that learning process and growth. And um, I think uh, in the last probably two to three weeks, we've finally gotten everybody on the same page. And it's been really reflective in our practices of uh, getting, you know, the guys buying into what we want and, uh, you know, seeing the big picture versus all the small, you know, all the small things that we were doing initially and maybe not understanding why we were doing them. Now it's all kind of come together, and um, you know when you got guys like Evan Boudreaux, Miles Wright, um, that are you know you know some of the you know have had the accolades from the past couple of years in the Ivy League. 
um, you know, we had to get those guys on board and um, got a lot of young guys with six freshmen that, you know, are just adjusting to life in college, be it, you know, in the classroom and on the court, which is a whole nother, uh, you know, aspect. So um, it's, uh, you know, it was just a growth process. And, you know, we're really excited about the direction we're going. And with six games left, hopefully we can uh, get a little run in us to, to make a stride and compete for that fourth spot. Let me see if uh, anyone you, else. Can you? Yeah, if, if anyone else on yeah. the panel has questions, feel free to hop in now. Yeah, I'll jump right in. Can yeah. you cl- claim any of the of the credit for the the best Twitter and in, in Ivy League basketball? <laughs> you know, I, I I presume that you're referring to doing games and things, and that's <laughs> when our that's when our SID uh, our SID controls it. Then um, I control it uh, outside of that. Um, even though it was funny, my parents did think I was doing it during the games at one point. So, um, uh, but no, I cannot take claim for that. That's Rick Bender, our sports information director. Yeah, no, that's okay. You're it, it's 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 the best Twitter all the time. So don't don't <laughs> well, be overly modest. We appreciate that, and I'll let I'll make sure Rick knows that, and like try to you know promote our program through that through that means. That's good stuff, yeah. I'd like to uh, ask, well, first make an observation. Uh, I had the opportunity to get up to Hanover when the Tigers were there a couple weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And and, uh, reflecting back over the season, I can't remember another team that played a better half uh, than than Dartmouth did uh, in the first half against the Tigers uh, two weeks ago. And and Evan Pedro was almost unstoppable that night. It it appeared to me that the kids were buying in to the new regime, and uh, and I think there's some success uh, coming for the Big Green. I uh, I hope it, it won't be too far away, but I, I think you guys are doing a nice job. Uh, Paul Cormier was one of the more respected coaches in the league, uh, and it was kind of. Uh, Kind of a shock uh, when the change was made, uh, but I, I, uh, it appears to me that things are, are going to be much smoother going forward. I can't imagine a bigger shock for you personally, Scott, to come from Southern California to the middle of New Hampshire. <laughs> yes, that is. I hope, uh, I hope you're enjoying yourself. Uh, yeah, uh, I used to tell people that. Uh, on Christmas Day, I'd be laying out by my pool in Southern California. This year, I was bundled up in the snow, so a uh, little bit different climate. But no, it's it's been a nice a uh, nice change of pace for sure. What what do you think was? I mean, so you start with that O and nine. Is that your dog, George? Yes, it is. Oh, what's its I name? Thought, that's Sammy, and Sammy has been on the broadcast several times now. Yeah, Sammy's Sammy's the real star. We won't mislead anybody there, but I, I wanted to ask what uh, after that zero and nine start, what uh, what what facets of the game did you feel like the the turnaround and, and gradual progression that we've seen over the course of the season? What facets of the game did 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 that turnaround take hold in? Are there uh, team strength that you noticed yeah. uh, uh, can uh, flower as as even the Ivy? league slate has has gone on yeah i think uh uh 
to, to reference back before I answer that, I think during that 0-9 stretch to start the year, you know, the biggest issue we had was we couldn't put a full game together. You know, we'd shoot the ball real well, but then we'd have, you know, 15, 16 turnovers. Or uh, defensively, we would really struggle and, uh, you know, getting, letting guys have penetration lanes or in transition, but uh, can, conversely, we'd be getting good shots. So uh, it was just finally getting everything to mesh together was the biggest, uh, one of the biggest things. But I think uh, in terms of in the last two to three weeks, the biggest strides have been made in our ball movement and pace of play on the offensive end where, uh, you know, coaches developing our culture is very big on, uh, you know, our pace of play. We want to really be getting good shots, moving the ball. And I think not to say that we were taking bad shots early, but we're a lot of opportunities where we could have made the extra pass or, uh, you know, just been a little bit more uh, advantageous with our shot selection. And uh, that's really changed in the last two weeks and we've gotten a lot better. And uh, I think just, you know, uh, on from a scouting perspective, as you get more and more film on teams and as we get into the Ivy League, our staff has delved a lot more into being able to break down and take our guys' strengths and pair them with the op- opposition to uh, to make sure that we're, you know, doing things uh, that are giving them the best opportunity to win. Yeah, yeah. And what and what what impresses you most? Uh, you know, you're coming in. This is your your first season. What's impressed you most about uh, Evan Boudreaux, who's an obvious and all Ivy first team talent? Certainly, he was IHO voted him as a first team yeah. last year. It, it's is it is it his mad scowl? Is it his concentration <laughs> face? Because he's man, he's he's really intimidating when he's uh, going to the hoop. He's he's got. Uh, He's he's got quite a countenance in the paint. Yeah, no, he's a, definitely a presence, and I think the biggest thing you know with Evan is finally sound. He is inside and outside player. Um, to go rebound in and outside of his area, and uh, you know players like they have the ability to do all those things are going to be uh, successful and. You know, we love, you know, he's a guy that we have to play through to be successful, and we need him, yeah, as he has in the last couple of weeks, to really take his game to the next level, and he's, he's really starting to do that, and uh, he's a guy, you know, for the next two years that we're really excited to build around. Let me just uh, ask, if, if Luke, do you have any questions for Scott while we're in the section here? Yeah, sure. I'm just curious. Uh, I know it's your first year in the Ivy League, but uh, what are your thoughts on the addition of the postseason tournament this year compared to just giving the bid to the NCAA tournament to the regular season champion in years past? Yeah, I, yeah, I think it's phenomenal. Um, you know, obviously being an outside better looking in, you know, you didn't really, I never really looked at it in terms of the, the disadvantages of not having a conference tournament because everywhere I've been, we've always had one. And, uh, you know, I could see very easily it, we're two and six right now. And, you know, you're almost, you're basically playing for, you know, playing to get better and playing for next year. But now at two and six, you know, we're still competing for, you know, for to have the opportunity to get into a tournament. And that changes a lot of things. And with the way the league is, I mean, it's an incredibly talented league. And for us, you know, our first two games were against Harvard. And, you know, they're obviously one of the top teams. And we were 
in that transition still of trying to find ourselves. And, you know, very easily, if you're 0-2, your guys can have the mentality of, oh, it's over, uh, you know, next year. But, no, I think this really can rejuvenate you and can, uh, you know, keeps you motivated for uh, to to go along and uh, get that fourth spot, you know, we're fighting for right now. I want to make sure we have time to we're, we're going to switch over and start grilling Luke in the same way. Look, to wrap up, <laughs> so you guys got um this weekend up ahead just to look ahead. Um yeah. uh, you guys have got Cornell and then Columbia at home. Um two teams that play, I would say pretty different styles of basketball. Uh and one thing that I think is um one thing that's interesting to me is how uh Ivy League teams deal with the back-to-back and two nights game planning. Um, whether you're yeah. home or away, so you know how do you how are you guys getting ready to play Cornell and Columbia? What is sort of the the week of practice look like, getting ready for those two different teams, and then what are you trying to do this weekend? Um, you know, it's funny that you say that they're different because they really do have some similarities to them. And you know, as a staff, you know, we sit down Monday morning and we're looking for those type of things and how we can incorporate the concepts of both into our practice plans. And uh, I think that, you know, they offensively, at least they do do some similar things defensively. They both play some one, three, one, some zone. So, you know, we, you know, we couple those things together in practice, but, you know, once Wednesday comes, we really lock in on, uh, you know, the Friday game and then uh, come tomorrow night after the game, we'll switch over and go right into Columbia and, um, for the next, you know, 18 hours until tip off, it's full bore on them. And, um, you know, we, we do enough on the court stuff that, uh, our guys will be prepared for it, uh, between our walkthroughs Saturday and some stuff earlier in the week, but it's definitely a challenge. And, uh, I think the biggest thing that I've learned in my, you know, first, you know, a couple of months in the Ivy league here is how difficult the travel part of it is to play on a Friday night, bus somewhere and then play Saturday and that's you know NBA style and uh you know that that's definitely difficult and definitely have uh it's nice to be home for two weeks in a row to be able to do that versus being on the road all right well as a as a as a Columbia fan I'll be rooting for you on Friday night but not Saturday so <laughs> uh, well, I appreciate it. <laughs> so you've been a good sport to answer all the questions. We're going to turn the fire over to Luke, but you know, please stay on the call because we'll be talking about last weekend, this weekend. I uh, want to get your thoughts on, and and I'm curious to get your thoughts on on uh, on analytics too. So let's let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about Luke. Um, first off, uh, so you're the president of the Yale Undergraduate Analytics Group, or as the acronym that I'm coming up with right now, it's UAG, possibly. Uh- uh, oh, close. Uh, USAG. It's uh, Yale Undergraduate Sports <laughs> Analytics Group. USAG. All right. Well, that's disgusting. Um, tell me a little <laughs> bit about the, the history of this group, um, which, as far as I believe, this is the first year I've heard of you guys. Then maybe that's just me being ignorant. Um, how did this? How did it come to be? What What is the What is the mission? Yeah. So this is actually the club's second year, um, but our, our first year doing any sort of Ivy League type stuff. So. Rightly so. I wouldn't have expected you to have heard of us in the past. But, um, you know, basically it was a bunch of guys who came together and all loved sports, loved sort of the numbers behind the sports, and uh, were sort of interested in doing projects that could 
reveal, you know, certain strategies or certain um, storylines that might not be visible just from watching the game itself. And so last year we focused a lot on professional sports. We did a couple NBA and NFL type projects. Um, and those are great, but it's really hard to, you know, sort of get those out there and, and get the, get a lot of people reading those just because there's so many people in, uh, both in the professional side of things and people for fun, you know, analyzing professional sports, um, as like personal projects. So one of our missions coming into this year was to focus our coverage more on Yale sport. It's Ivy league sports. And, uh, so we've, we've, created a partnership with the student newspaper on campus, the Yale Daily News, and we have a weekly column there. And uh, so in the fall, a lot of our articles were doing football predictions and looking at uh, some of the soccer teams. And uh, come the second semester, we've really turned our attention towards the Ivy League basketball seasons and uh, hockey seasons. And I think that the addition of the tournament this year makes sort of the analytics side of things a lot more interesting just because instead of just one team trying to trying to calculate, you know, one team getting the automatic bid, now you have all sorts of fun storylines for the number four seed. And as was mentioned earlier, you know, all all eight teams are still playing meaningful games at this point in the season. Yeah, so uh, talk a little bit about, about so my understanding is you guys, I don't know whether it's a, an engine or whatever, but you guys crank out predictions every week. What was the process of coming up with those predictions? Um, are you happy with the way your model has, has performed so far? Yeah, um, well, I, I think our predictions are like 27 and 5 on the season or, or 25 and 7, something like that. But, you know, we're we're right around 75%, which I would say is, it's pretty good uh, for our first year doing this. Um, basically, you know, to, to not get too technical, the, the way it works is uh, we take all the scores of uh, every Division One college basketball game that's been played this year, and uh, we have an algorithm that sort of ranks all the teams, um, like and gives them a coefficient. And so to predict the, the score differential between any two teams playing, you would just subtract the difference between the coefficients. So, for example, I think you know Princeton's coefficient is something like 12, and uh, Harvard's might be 8. So that means that if Princeton and Harvard met on a neutral floor, you would expect Princeton to win by about 4 points. And then we can also adjust for things like who's home and who's away. And that ends up favoring the home team by about four points. So uh, when Princeton came to Harvard uh, just the other week, it was we, we called it as basically less than one point of separation between the two teams because uh, Princeton on a neutral floor would be about four points better, but Harvard had the home court advantage. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. What um, uh, has there been any adjustments as far as 
Um, well, I mean, what, what would you say has been the biggest adjustment you've had to make to the um, to the way that you uh, either assign the coefficients or or otherwise uh, crank the system out? Yeah. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, we we made an adjustment um, by weighting conference games as more important. Um, when we st- okay. when we built this when we had built the system, it it weighted every game equally. Um, but then, you know, sort of thinking about it, thinking about the numbers that we were getting, um, and just sort of thinking intuitively about it, it makes more sense to say, um, you know, how a team played last weekend is more indicative of how they'll play than how they played back in November. Um, so, you know, going back to the the Dartmouth case, um, I would say the last two or three weeks where they've seemed to put a lot of things together is uh, more indicative of how they'll play the rest of the way than, you know, the, the first 10 games of the season. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> that'll, that'll make, uh, that'll make coach Wa- uh, Waterman happy. There you go. That's yeah, awesome. yeah. Now. Director Waterman. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, yeah. Well, do you have uh, um, any, any trends in the, these final three Ivy weekends coming up that, uh, um, that you see that uh, might be surprising as far as well maybe one uh, maybe one two and six Ivy squad has a clearer path to to maybe five or six league wins. Mike, overall. I know you want him to say that Penn is going to make the tournament, and I really need you to just calm down, please. No, uh, no, I, no, I don't think that was too much of a leading question, but I'm not I'm not the lawyer on the panel. Yeah, so. if if this was a courtroom, you you would have been overruled by a judge there. So. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I was looking at that, and, and one interesting trend that I see is uh, just looking at the numbers. There's this really strong possibility that we're going to get a a tie for the number four seed, and uh, you know that the, the fourth seed will be decided by a tiebreaker. Um, which you know at the beginning of the season that might not have been so obvious, but in uh, in our latest simulations, you know six six wins got the number four seed about thirty three percent of the time, and seven wins was enough for the number four seed forty two percent of the time, and uh, eight wins was only required less than twenty percent of the time. So, you know, realistically, teams getting to six, seven wins by the final weekend have a legitimate chance uh, for the number four seed, you know, barring whatever tiebreakers are need to be applied. And so when you say, when you say that there's a strong possibility uh, of a tie, that's, that's really what you're getting at the fact that, you know, there's a 75% chance that you're only going to need seven wins, a one in three chance that you'll go, uh, six and eight, and be able to uh, at least at least force a tie, regardless of which uh, middle middle tier team you are, basically. Right? Yeah, that's that's right. Um, okay. Now, uh, you know, the, it gets sort of muddled in that six seven win area, just because for several teams to get down there, the the tiebreakers get pretty confusing. Um, but it, but it seems that. You know, Penn um, would do better if four, if six or seven wins would decide the four seed. Um, as soon as we start getting up to eight wins, 
that really tends to favor Colombia. Um, just if they, based on the right. scenarios that required teams to tie at eight wins, Colombia would win a lot of those tie breaks. And then, of course, uh, anything over eight wins with, you know, nine wins, that's Colombia, just based on the fact that the, the five through eight teams right now don't have enough games left to get to nine wins. Right. We don't, we don't want to make, in a sense, you don't want to make it too complicated, which is um, three weeks in, Colombia does have a big advantage that they're two games up on the other teams. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, would, it, would a way to interpret what you're saying be to say simply that it's more likely that Colombia is able to win three games than another team is able to win five games? Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, and and even if, you know, C- Colombia um, and, you know, say Cornell tied at eight wins, th- then we think that Cornell, uh, sorry, Colombia would have higher chance of winning that tiebreaker. And that's largely um, just, a function of, of the fact that Columbia's already beaten Harvard. Yeah. Um, just based on the fact that the, uh, the the tiebreakers are, I believe, first head-to-head. And then and uh, Columbia and Cornell, of course, have, have split head-to-head. And then the tiebreakers would go uh, record versus the top three teams. And, yeah, based on the fact that Columbia has an, a nice win against Harvard, who, you know, barring some sort of collapse, should finish in the top three. Um, that really favors them in a lot of the tiebreak scenarios right now. What were your uh, what, what were your um, uh, observations of the uh, the Harvard uh, Yale game last week? I know that that was a tough one. Yeah, certainly a tough one as a, as the Yale fan to lose to your bitter rival, but. Um, you know, a couple things. One was that from a purely playoff perspective, even though this game had, you know, little meaning, um, because, you know, we're sort of all assuming now that Harvard and Yale both end up making it to the Palestra come March, you know, it felt like a, a really important game. Um, both teams certainly played that way. The The crowd was really hyped up about the game. So that's always exciting to see. Um, and, you know, it, it sort of weakens the argument against having a tournament that makes the, le- the regular season games less important because it, it certainly didn't feel that way. Um, now, as far as analyzing what actually happened on the court, I, I sort of feel that um, Yale didn't use their size enough to their advantage in the second half. Um, you know, they when we talk about reasons for, for Yale doing well, uh, we often point to their ability to rebound, um, grab a lot of offensive rebounds and, you know, sort of minimize second chance opportunities for their opponents. Um, it, it, it seems like they were really afraid of getting out rebounded in the second half to the point that they were all crashing and, you know, leaving too many open shooters for three. And, uh, you know, Harvard has enough good shooters that you give them enough open looks and they'll make you pay. And uh, that's what they did. So, you know, we play them again in a few weeks. It'll be uh, exciting to see if we can make some adjustments and uh, even up the season series. Yeah. Before we get off the topic of I, before we get off the topic of analytics and move toward the uh, the games, I want to ask uh, Scott 
I'm, I'm interested as um, different teams in the league use data in different ways to support their their efforts. Um, you know, I, I know, for example, that the Columbia regime under Kyle Smith and the Columbia regime under Jim Engels both used both use advanced data in very different ways um, to, to, to measure different things. What is your, your guys' approach to data, and um, how do you incorporate it either in practice or getting ready for game, or uh, how do you guys work with that? Yeah, you know, uh, we definitely use it. And, you know, it's kind of funny. I've been coaching now for 15 years, and, you know, when I first started in 2002, you know, analytics, you know, it was based, your basic plus minus was about the only thing that was really focused on. And now it's really exploded into a whole, uh, you know, whole field like uh, Luke's kind of described here. And um, we definitely uh, use analytics, uh, especially uh, on the scouting side as we get prepared for games, looking at trends of our opponents and um, as well as looking at, you know, our stats, our uh, pace of play points per possession. Um, so it's really, uh, it's really something that coach McLaughlin, uh, uses extensively in our, uh, in our scouting and in our program to, uh, to help us, you know, try to get us to that next level. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's really interesting. And I, I think part of it is, the, um, a lot of the technologies that people are using to, to track, even more advanced things like player movement um, in practice, there's a, a, a there was a prohibitive cost factor that's that's sort of gone down yeah. over the years. Um, I think I, I recommend people take a look. There was a pretty good article in the Columbia Spectator at some point during the season that, that discussed the the data gathering operation that Columbia uses during practices at, at Levian. That seems like really technologically advanced stuff that you would not think necessarily that 10 years you could have even had, not only was it not invented, but there would be prohibitive costs required. Um, how, do, how is it that you, the flip side though is I feel like there's a lot of data that you could collect and could do. What, yeah. do, you, what do you guys do to filter out, you know, I think Nate Silver would say the signal from the noise. What is it, how Do you have guys who are more adept with data or is it, um, how do you guys work with that problem? You know, I think that, you know, you, you take it for what it is. Um, I think, you know, kind of like when they talk about the NCAA tournament, the eye test versus the, the numbers, and I think you can get overly involved in the numbers, and it can give you a lot of great information, don't get me wrong, but I think also when push comes to shove, you know, you have to be, uh, you know, be willing to follow what you believe in, and um, sometimes the n- numbers, you know, do dictate exactly what what the thought is, but there are other times, like, no, especially like from my perspective, and when I was at Pomona, we had a an analytics program that, uh, you know, maybe not as uh, advanced as what Luke uses, but um, advanced enough to uh, get some good data. But there were times when it would say lineups, you know, where this lineup was effective and this one wasn't. But, you know, that was what the numbers said. But on paper, there were different things that it would do. Um, as well. So I think it's just a, a matter of feel and, uh, you know, some coaches are just more, uh, more advanced at it than others. And, you know, I think everybody's got just a different feel for that type of stuff. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's, it's really fascinating. I think it's a sort of a subtext of a subtext mm-hmm. of this generation of college basketball. It's going to be the way that, especially as you have players coming through the system who are more adept with these numbers that they, um, they 
they work with their whole lives. Um, yeah. You know. do, do you have guys who you think are really into looking at that stuff, or uh, is it mostly at the coaching level? You know, I think it's mostly at the coaching level. I think that we can use it as an overview for them and give them some, you know, just quick snapshots of things. Um, I know we've done that with, you know, some points per possession things and types of shots and points per possession and uh, tempo. But I don't think that we need, uh, you know, the players, you know, I want them to go out or we as a staff want them to go out and play and not be so concerned about, you know, processing, you know, overthinking the game. And I think ultimately that's what it comes down to, um, you know, is going down and being able to play. And um, the numbers can can give you some, uh, you know, background to go into it. But you got to go out and execute and do the things that you do. And, uh, you know, so I think they're valuable, but ultimately it's just more of a foundation to go play upon. Are there are there one or two analytic nuggets that you find most valuable? Um. I think, you know, a pace of play is one that, you know, is very intriguing to me as well as uh, I, I think different types of shots uh, that uh, guys are most efficient out of our opponents, especially. So, you know, we could come back and it says, you know, one guy is, you know, uh, you know, whatever it is as a spot up shooter versus penetrating to his right. And it's all those things that are pretty fascinating. Can this help you get more dialed in for a scouting report? So I want to make sure we take some time to talk about last weekend. A lot of stuff happened. And let me frame it this way. I'll ask – I will not ask my intuition. I will ask Luke, who runs the the, the Magic 8-Ball, what was the biggest upset or – and or – the, the most influential game on deciding who's going to be in or out of the tournament from last weekend? Yeah, um, I would say actually Dartmouth's upset, upset if you will, at Brown. Um, and, uh, you know, Brown had uh, an opportunity with Columbia losing twice to cut the, cut the difference in wins to either one or go tied with them. Um, but both teams got swept. And um, given the fact that Columbia already has a win in its pocket over Brown. Uh, Brown's playoff chances fell from about 30% to now somewhere in the range of 7 or 8%. Um, and, uh, you know, as well as Dartmouth kept themselves alive in the, alive in the playoff race. And, uh, and uh, yeah, you know, all the uh, games this weekend um, in particular will – will be influential for the playoff race, but uh, particularly the Columbia-Dartmouth game mm-hmm. and the uh, and the Brown-Penn games this weekend will be uh, really fun games to watch um, from a playoff perspective just because there are so many teams clustered there, you know, within striking distance of that fourth spot. So that Dartmouth-Brown game, it was a big upset for you guys at the, at the Piz. Scott, um... What did you see in that game that you liked uh, in, from from your guys? Well, I think uh, looking at the stats, Evan Boudreaux took, really took his game to the next level. Um, yeah, I think 23 points and uh, 12 rebounds, I believe. Uh, but, you know, he just kind of took over the game with uh, some penetration, drives to the basket. I believe he hit three threes. 
13 or 12 or 13 rebounds, whatever he had, just were, were real big for us. And, you know, we got up, we were up eight with about four minutes left. And you got to give Brown a lot of credit. They came down and, uh, you know, chipped it away and got it to uh, tied it up with about a minute left. And uh, we came down the court and uh, Mike Fleming, our, our senior leader, who's been a just a, a tremendous presence for us this year, hit a big three in the corner with about 55 seconds left. And uh, we came down and were able to get a stop. And um, I think that was, that, that was a huge momentum builder for us to win a game like that when, uh, you know, we haven't really been in that situation all year. And, uh, you know, I think, A, that may have been why, we, you know, we kind of got a little passive there in the last two or three minutes. Uh, but uh, from a coaching perspective, it was great to see a guy like Mike step up and, uh, you know, other guys just make plays and, you know, easily you could hang your head if you've given up six, eight points in a row and uh, that that point in the game. And our guys continued to battle, battle, chip and uh, came out on the right end of it. So we were very fortunate to do that because Browns, they're, they're a really good team. And, um, you know, any it could have been a 50-50 game. Yeah, big result for Dartmouth keep themselves in it, and then obviously helping out Columbia a little bit, who stumbled this weekend. Let's shift south and talk a little bit about, we're going to get to next weekend toward the end, but I want to make sure we talk about everything real quick. Um, Mike, uh, Penn gets off the schneid in a big way. They were 0-6 coming into the weekend. They are no longer 0-6, although they still have six losses. Um, big wins for them against Penn and then uh, against Columbia, and then the, the Sunday night against uh, against Cornell. What would Penn do better this weekend that they weren't doing before? Well, they they got the shooting that they've been the outside shooting that they've been really looking for 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 quite a while now. Uh, all Penn has really needed during uh, this drought uh, is is you know really with the exception of their loss at Princeton when they did go I think seven for sixteen from three they've needed shooting. Uh, against Columbia, Sam Jones stepped up. Against Cornell, Ryan Fetley stepped up uh, uh, from uh, from outside early and often, and, and really gave a, a balance uh, to this offense uh, that that has really been lacking, uh, especially against Cornell. That was kind of uh, taking it to an extreme in the first half, just obliterating uh, the Big Red on on that Sunday afternoon. Uh, you know, making it so that it's not just A.J. Broder or bust on offense uh, is is huge. And, you know, this roster has been built all along to uh, to provide that. If, it, if it's not uh, Sam Jones one night, then it could certainly be Ryan Bentley or Caleb Wood or Matt McDonald or... Jackson Donahue, uh, you know, this roster is is built to uh, complement that inside-outside approach that Coach Steve Donahue wants this team to have and that this team has had uh, at certain points this season, although I think the strength of this team, both uh, in the eye test and uh, analytically, is, is, is definitely the defense. So, it's going to be very interesting, you know, pivoting ahead to this weekend with the Friday night game at Brown. Uh, you know, can can this Penn team be, uh, keep up with uh, uh, keep up with the Bears, who 
you know, like to play a fast pace. Steven Spieth is going to get his points. He usually gets, you know, he gets at least around that 21-point marker or so. He's going to get his shots. Uh, and you need to be able to keep up with that. Earlier in the season at the Palestra, Penn was not able to keep up with that against Brown. And it's going to be, you know, really crucial, as as Luke alluded to, you know, can, can Penn get that shooting uh, because its defense is not going to be able to totally shut uh, Brown down. When when Columbia uh, was able to uh, hang on against Brown earlier uh, this season, Peter, as you know, it was it was a higher scoring affair, and, and you know that that is likely to be what it's going to take again uh, this weekend from a Penn perspective. So then going up the turnpike a little bit, Princeton, another uh, undefeated weekend as they've been all season in the Ivy League. Uh, George, uh, specifically, obviously, I want to ask about the Columbia game, but um, in, in part because uh, sort of an uncharacteristic Princeton uh, collapse isn't quite the right, right word, but they, they had a 20-point lead, and uh, when the buzzer sounded, it was only a one-point lead. Um, are there warning signs for Princeton from that game? Uh, my apologies. Are there are there warning no. signs for Princeton in that second half? Uh, no. And I'll tell you why. The number one data point. I would hope I would hope you would tell me why, because otherwise that would have been a very unsatisfying <laughs> answer. The, the big data point that uh, our games uh, reveal is the final score, uh, and Princeton has uh, had the more points than its opponent eight straight times, uh, and I'm enjoying the heck out of it. Uh, but I have to say this, uh, we had that long reading period, as you recall, and then went to Dartmouth and, and left Hanover feeling that we had really kind of escaped there. We we go to Harvard and we really did escape there on uh, uh, just a, a fantastic ending. Then we go down to Penn to play at the Palestra, where we historically have always had problems and have always had just uh, exhilarating games. And we had a laugher. Uh, it, it was shocking. Uh, Penn did, just didn't show up to play that night, and our kids did a lot of things right. And we played very well against Cornell in the first half, bearing in mind now this is our fourth game in eight days. Uh, Cornell came back. Uh, they have a lot of talent. Morgan and Hatter had tremendous games. We really had no answer for them. But senior leadership uh, prevailed at the end of the game, uh, and then Devin Kennedy made four free throws in a row again uh, in the last minute. So uh, the final was comfortable, but uh, we were riding our defense. The next night, we get a 20-point lead against Columbia. Now, this is the fifth game in nine days. And frankly, I, I think that in the second half, Columbia had been – frankly, stumbling through that first half. I think they were reeling from the experience of uh, the night before yielding Penn's first victory. But we get up by 20, held them to 26 points. And frankly, I, I just think we kind of got fatigued. We kind of ran out of gas. And Columbia played a very good second half. Uh, senior leadership, Stephen Cook had three threes to, to hold them off. And we had fouls to give at the end. They got a pretty good look. Uh, uh, Killingsworth had a, a pretty good look at a three uh, and missed. So, again, we escaped. We've escaped four times in this five game in the, the last uh, 
five wins. Three of them on the road and then two tough ones at home. So I, our kids have done all they really have been expected to do. I think this week off will be refreshing. Very, very difficult game tomorrow night. Uh, clearly, uh, Yale, I would expect, will be favored. We hope uh, that we can win up there. Anderson hasn't won up there. and I don't think he has won up there, frankly, uh, in his uh, season. Very difficult game, but it's there's just there's not as much pizzazz associated with the game at Yale as uh, as there might otherwise be uh, because of the uh, the fact that we frankly are virtually assured of getting into the tournament. But we're looking forward to the weekend. Brown is a is a tough game. Uh, we had a, we had our way with them in New Jersey, but we won't be able to beat them by thirty. Clearly, in in, in uh, Rhode Island, I I hope uh, our kids are ready for a tough road trip. We've got another one next weekend uh, with the Columbian Cornell. Yeah, so I we'll, just want I want to add a couple. Wait and see. I want to add a couple quick thoughts about Columbia's weekend before we do the the wrap up piece. Um, because hard to believe we've been talking for 50 minutes already. Um, I think Columbia, you know, uh, yeah, bad first half, good second half against Princeton. Um, you know, the results look poor for Columbia, but I actually I, I'm not terribly disheartened. Uh, Penn was a team that I think was due for a win, and, and Princeton is very good, a very good side. Um, the worrisome thing for Columbia is the, the depth is, uh, you know, they have a lot of guys who can play, but they're not getting a ton of production. Um, disappointing in the Princeton game that, you know, Nate Hickman's two for nine, Petrosic only adds seven points, and you had to, you know, they have to give seven minutes to Andrew Penio too, who is a freshman, and I believe that was his first, his first game action, certainly in the Ivy League. Um, that's not great, uh, that, that, that they're, you know, part of it is, you know, in, in league play, you, you have to turn to depth, and that's part of it, but, um, you know, they are really, they're getting so much from Mike Smith right now. 34 minutes against Penn, 33 minutes against Princeton. Guy who's facilitating the offense. He's their leading scorer uh, against Penn. Sorry, against Princeton. Um, They're getting a lot from a freshman point guard, and the worrisome thing would be if these other guys don't start stepping up on a more consistent basis, um, are they going to be able to, to sort of sustain their run? It's a, it's a tricky weekend for them, too, because Harvard, uh, Friday night at Levitis is, is always a, a challenge and a place where they have historically had some real barn burners. Last year it was the Rosenberg walk-off, uh, which was perhaps the greatest moment of my life. Um, and then two years before, uh, I was I was at Levitis for a, a Ciani Chambers walk-off. That was perhaps the worst moment of my life. So... Um, that's a mixed bag, and then uh, obviously Scott's Dartmouth team is is a lot to handle. When especially the second night of a doubleheader, um, you know you have to worry about being eaten by wolves on your way up to Hanover, which is <laughs> uh, challenging. Uh, you know to have to that it requires some real mental fortitude. And, and the Big Green are, are uh, were no slouch when uh, Columbia played them at home. So it's a tough weekend for the Lions. Um, the thing I keep falling back on is they do have a really positive position in the in the 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 standings favor them because not only do they have the four wins, they already have the win against Harvard. If they can beat Dartmouth and then or Harvard, either one, those are that's a big victory and I think you'd be have to say five and five 
going into the final four games is, is a fine spot for the Lions. So we've only got eight minutes left, and I want to make sure everyone talks one more time. So I'm going to go around the table, and what I like to do is uh, one thing you're looking at this weekend that you think is particularly interesting that we might not have touched on so far. Uh, so this is a little opportunity to look ahead for, for about a minute or, or less. Um, so let's start with um, Luke. Let me ask you what it is that you're looking for this week ahead. Yeah, um, I guess this weekend is sort of the the most important weekend that we've had thus far for determining the number four seed. Uh, you know, just because after this, there's not too many more weekends left. And uh, right now, there's, uh, you know, a chance for everyone. But, uh, you know, I guess I'm looking to see if after this weekend, Columbia can sort of put the foot on the gas and really take tight control of the the race for the number four spot or uh you know probably two losses this weekend would would make it a wide open race uh which could be really exciting the last four weeks uh i guess if you're not a columbia fan (laughs) but uh yeah so i guess i'm just looking forward to to seeing what happens with that number four seed if we sort of have some separation or or get more um more clustering heading into the final two weeks of the season uh, let's go, Mike. What are you looking for? I'm uh, the game that I'm intrigued by is is Princeton at Yale and seeing, you know, it is the place that the Tigers have struggled historically. Uh, Richard Kent had made the point in a previous podcast. Well, you know, maybe maybe Anthony Dallier, uh who missed uh, those teams' previous uh, game. You know, maybe he was uh, the difference. I think he was probably a difference, uh, to be sure. Uh, and so it's going to be interesting to see, you know, this Yale team coming off coming off of that loss against Harvard. You know, are they able to, against what is a very fine Princeton defense, and one that probably doesn't get talked enough about in comparison to its offensive acumen, is how does Yale limit the turnovers? Because... Yale has struggled with turnovers the last uh, the last couple of games. Um, you know, this is a team that, you know, I think it has definitely become a trend now where they're getting into the high teens in turnovers. And, you know, that's not, even at home, even at uh, Payne Whitney, that's not going to cut it uh, against the Tigers. George, what do you got? Uh, just a quick story. Uh, I, I'm not looking for anything particular at this point this weekend, but uh, there's a place in Hanover, uh, Jesse's Steakhouse. Scott, are you familiar with it? Yeah, it's uh, great. It really is. It's uh, one of our favorite stops. And uh, I was there with uh, Spencer Weiss's family at this time, uh, and Andy Weiss, Spencer's father, said goodbye to the bartender as we were leaving. And the bartender said, Uh, what do you mean goodbye? He said, I don't know that I'm ever going to be back in Hanover again. And I've enjoyed knowing you these last four years. (laughs) I thought that was kind of funny from my perspective. I have to break in a new set of new sets of parents every year, but uh, I will be back at Jesse's Scott. It was great to have you on this broadcast. Luke, you too. Uh, And maybe someday we'll have a drink at uh, Jesse's together. You got it. Next time you're in Hanover, we'll, we'll definitely take care of that for you. Scott, what are you looking forward to this weekend? You know, I think the big thing that I'm looking forward to is just uh, two more opportunities for our team to get back out on the court. 
um, and continue to build our culture and show the identity that we're building with Dartmouth basketball. Um, you know, win or lose, I think that as long as we're continuing to play the game that we want to play, our style, um, you know, we'll let the chips fall into place. But I'm just really excited to get back on the court again. And um, anytime you can, uh, you know, play, it's, it's uh, you know, a great thing. And um, I know our guys are really excited. We've had another good week of practice. Don't get me wrong, Cornell is, you know, an extremely talented team with Matt Morgan, Stone Gettings. We have them on uh, Friday and then turn around uh, with Luke Petrasek, uh, Mike Smith, uh, Jake Killingsworth on, uh, and the rest of the Columbia squad on Saturday. And Coach Ingles who does a phenomenal job, uh, has done a phenomenal job with them as well as Coach Earl. So we have two big challenges, but we're just really looking forward to going out and putting the Dartmouth brand of basketball and uh, out there and uh, seeing what happens. Uh, that's, that's great to hear. I mean, uh, we're all, you know, one of the weird things about the Ivy League is you, you have this long wall of five days and then it all happens all of a sudden. So yeah. we're just excited to, to, to turn on uh, turn on TV and, and, and catch it all. Or, you know, some of you are going to watch it in person. Uh, it's very difficult for me. But the, the rest of you, I hope will enjoy it. So thank you so much. It's been another great episode of On the Vine. Uh, a bit of a longer one this week, but that's because we had some really great guests. And I'm really thankful to Coach Scott Waterman of the Dartmouth uh, Men's Basketball Program. Uh, Coach, thanks for coming on the show. Where can people find you uh, on Twitter? Uh, you know, obviously we have our Dartmouth uh, uh, Twitter account, DartMBV, uh, as well as uh, my own personal one, at Coach Waterman. And, uh, you know, keep you guys posted on Dartmouth basketball through both those means. Well, thanks very much, Coach. Yeah. Uh, and thank you very much to Luke, uh, Luke Benz of the Yale undergraduate sports analytics group uh which has uh acronym that i already forgot luke where can people find your guys' stuff yeah uh you can find us on twitter um at yale sports group uh or my personal account is at rexpex 730 thanks very much for coming on the show oh my pleasure thanks for having me thanks as always to the toothless hiker himself george clark george thank you and enjoy the weekend Thank you. It, it's uh, it's always a pleasure, and, and it's great that so many of the Ivy League games are still relevant after uh, eight games in. There's a lot of interest, there's a lot of talent, a lot of action, and I think the tournament is just going to be fantastic. And thank you to the uh, absent last week, back this week, and more with more firepower than ever, uh, the editor-in-chief of Ivy Hoops Online, Mike Tony. Thanks, Mike. Let the record show I'm wearing an orange shirt right now as we sign off. This is a You're podcast. Welcome, George. This is a podcast. No one cares. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. <laughs> Thanks very much, everyone, for listening. I've been Peter Andrews. Uh, enjoy the game next week, and we'll be back at you next week. Take care, and good night.